Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Friday, October 13th, 2023. Joining me for today's podcast are John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide, Stuart Walpin, the irascible. Steve, uh, Stuart Walpin. I'll just throw <laughs> that word. Mr. Irascible to you. Mr. Irascible. Yeah, thank you. Uh, who writes for Popular Mechanics, AARP, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other fine publications. And Washington National fan, Rob Pegarero, who writes about tech developments at PC Mag, Fast Company, and other publications. Uh, on this day, day of all days, guys, how are you doing? Very good. Under the circumstances. Yeah, under the circumstances, I'm, I'm afraid that some of the circumstances yeah. might pop up during the uh, <laughs> podcast discussion we're about to have. So let's get right to it uh, here. Uh, this is my topic. Uh, one thing I did um, watch in earnest this week was um, Adobe Max, which is Adobe's big um, uh, conference uh, with partners and, you know, kind of unveiling all of their goodies. Uh, they announced a whole new slew of AI related uh, content development and management uh, products. I mean, tr some, I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch it, but um, or at least some of the keynote stuff, but truly unbelievable stuff, you know, and, and other companies, of course, have similar type of tools. But I want to take this to a next higher level. One of the things that was advanced during the keynote, which I thought was creative, cre uh, interesting, and creative at the same side, um, was the notion that um, it requires, you know, skills and some type of inherent talent to, to draw a painting or to write something for that matter. And that, especially around the drawing front where Adobe is, is known for, um, you know, imaging, uh, image editing products and things like that. They're, they're art, you know, articulating a view that, you know what? You don't really have to have a lot of inherent talent. As long as you've got AI tools, you know, you don't need that kind of wonderful gift that God or whoever you believe gives you uh, that to conjure up a drawing like where, you know, Da Vinci or Michelangelo who had unbelievable um, uh, skills. So it's more of a philosophical thing uh, so I want to kind of get your guys' reaction to that whole notion is AI kind of taking the humanity out of creativity. That's number one, pretty lofty topic. But the other thing that's interesting is that the tools now are letting you do things using a text interface for imaging and video processing that is very simple to do. I mean, it, it, you know, for example, moving backgrounds has been around since the dawn of the camera, but you had to know what you were doing. You know, it was, you know, you had to be a, a, a film editing or a film of, of aficionado. These tools now are so simple that anybody with a basic background can do some interesting stuff. Like they have this one tool, which is incredibly interesting. It's, a, it's called Gen Fill, which essentially you could take a picture and let's say you want to be able to, you know, crop, not crop, but expand the, vi uh, the field of view of the picture. And through AI, it will look at the background and assume, oh, that wall must go a little bit further. Maybe on the right-hand side, there's some other stuff that makes it look exactly like you took the picture at a, at a much larger view. And it's mind-blowing. So, Stuart, let me start with you because you always have an opinion about things. What about the first topic that I brought up in terms of the whole taking the humanity out of creativity? You think well, I'm yeah, I, th I think the thing to remember is that I think as technologists, we all understand that new technologies 
create new opportunities. I mean, the first, when I started to look at all this stuff, the first name that popped into my head was Nam June Paik. Um, there was no such thing as video art until there was video. And there are John Cage and a lot of audio uh, pioneers in art. So new technology always creates new art. This, is, this has been true, at least for most of the 20th century. I'm much more concerned about the democratization of image manipulation. I'm reminded, I'm going to go back a long time, back to, you all know who Boss Tweed was. And there was a cartoonist, there was a cartoonist by the name of Thomas Nast. Yes. Uh, who was the first great political cartoonist. He invented the donkey for the Democrats and the elephant for the Republicans. And he invented our modern image of Santa Claus. Well, he started doing political cartoons against Tweed. And what he, Tweed essentially said that he was doomed by these cartoons because he said his constituents couldn't read, but they could damn well see pictures. <laughs> and so image manipulation through... Um, political cartoons through Joseph Stalin's eliminating his enemies out of pictures and altering history, whether it was airbrushing models in the 60s, all the way up to America's top model today. Um, AI is simply another piece in that toolkit. Again, it democratizes them. As you were saying before, it took a degree of skill to do this. Now anybody can manipulate an image. And I'm, I'm more fearful of that than I think than of any other aspect of it. And the fact that Adobe is presenting all these with a huge smile on their face um, and bragging about being able to do this leaves me a little, you know, without any kind of safeguards against what people could do with this technology. It leaves me a little chilled. Well, it certainly is the, the fake news aspect, which a lot of these tools will feed into, which is what you're alluding to. Yep. Um, John, what's, what's your, what's your uh, where's your head on this? Color me chilled. Um, yeah, I'm <laughs> definitely there's certainly concerned there. But you know, Adobe, like a lot of other technology companies, are are in a in a bind here. Do you remember we used to do like Corel Draw used to be a big thing, you know, and Adobe Photoshop used to be a big thing. There, that's their real problem. Is that why would I spend eight hundred dollars on Adobe Photoshop or whatever it is these days, if I can just push a button and have Dali? completely change and fix an image. I mean, there's no real need for their software anymore. That's the bottom line that they're facing. So they got to do something. So they had to introduce something like this because everybody else was, and otherwise they'd be wiped out. It would just be nothing left for them, including this is happening in video. So any video editing software, any of that is now going to be subject to that. And it's going to be very soon where you simply say, I want these images using your voice in this order and it yes. will just cut and will do it automatically. Oh, yeah. So those oh, yeah. programs, that's been a very profitable business for everybody for a long time. But it's interesting though, I'm getting, you You guys are probably getting peppered by groups too. A lot of organizations out there want to have some regulation and they're petitioning their legislators about copyright. That's the other thing. Forget about misinformation. It's like, just pure out and out stealing because you don't create these images ex nihilo. None of this is ex nihilo. It's I used your image to make this other image. And so right. where, where do we cross those you lines? Like, that. That's going to be a big issue. And the other was, do they get copyright if I create an AI image? And Google yes. said, you know, Google said, oh, if you get sued for copyright infringement on an image, our fault. no problem. 
<laughs> I got deep pockets. I'll defend you. No problem. Cause they want to sell their, their products. So it's going to be quite a battle. Yes. Well, I, I certainly believe, you know, what Stuart said in terms of the, the democratization component, which I think at, at the end of the day, I mean, you can make that argument about a lot of things as technology advances as, as long as the, and we've talked about this before, as long as the content that's created, whether it's an image or whether it's a video, video especially, as long as it's it's watermarked in some way in a high encrypted secure way that you know relatively easily that it's a conjured up piece of content, then I don't have, I have a problem with that. The problem is these tools are so incredibly realistic that it's going to be hard, you know, and but let, Rob, let me give you the last word on this. Yeah, so so glad you mentioned watermarks. The the Adobe announcement that I sort of paid more attention to was the content credential watermark, which is supposed to basically it's a bit of embedded metadata. We'll see how tamper resistant is in practice. Yeah. That will tell you the tools used to create this, you know, and so you can be clear about how much of this is human effort, how much of it was uh, one one Firefly image model or another in one of Adobe's apps or services. Now, since we've mentioned uh, copyright, the interesting part of this in terms of economic incentives is that the Supreme Court has been pretty consistent in saying you can't copyright something that an AI made. Right. You telling this program to do something doesn't mean it's it's your creative effort. There are arguments to be made against it. Tim Lee did a really good essay about this at Ars Technica a week or two ago saying that, you know, when you're going through hundreds of iterative prompts to try to get the exact image you want, that is creativity. It is at least as much creativity as it takes to compose a picture to get the right things in the frame, which initially, as he explains in the story, was not entirely clear. You're just holding this thing up before the world. You're not staging it in any way. What's the creativity there? And now it's accepted that, you know, yes, Ansel Adams gets to copyright his beautiful pictures of Yosemite Valley because there is art in setting up the creation of this nice image i i just uh, i couldn't disagree more about that i mean that's like contravenes every aesthetic theory out there i mean there's like no defense for that um you can defend marcel duchamp and putting a urinal out there because that's an idea that is a new idea prompts in chat gpt not a new idea. I, I was like that. Well, so far the courts are very much agreeing with you on that point. Yeah, I yeah, mean, I think it's worth his essay because he he yeah. he advances it in a way I can respect. I see where he's coming right. from. It made me think. I can't say it's changed my mind yet. Well, just remember <laughs> one thing. One thing in terms of courts recognizing copyrighted work, it took twenty or thirty years for the courts to recognize software as patentable, patentable. Which has had all kinds of <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, the courts early on just said you're putting a bunch of numbers together. That's I, you can't patent that, and it, yes. it took it took decades for the courts to realize that software was something that was creative and could be patented. Well, that's why to be copyrighted, but not patentable. Well, right. I understand that, but there's it's 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 a similar concept to what we don't understand about uh, how we create things with technology and how we define them. Legally. Well, guys, we got to move on to the next topic, but I suggest that Adobe sends a, a license-free subscription to the entire Supreme Court, because I will tell you that as someone who uses a lot of these tools, I, I suspect when you start using them and you, to, to Rob's point, 
when you start making um, the, 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 the probably 30, 40, 50 different um, uh, prompts and edits in the text, especially with a tool like Dally, there is some con there is some creativity that goes into that. I mean, because and that's what creates the, that end end solution that you're satisfied. So, eh, the Supreme maybe the Supreme Court will get religion after they start playing with some of these tools, <laughs> if that ever happens, which it probably won't. Uh, let's go to the next uh, to uh, slide here, Bob. You know, you're doing everything you can to get um, a, a cease and desist order from Elon Musk. You had a, a wonderful story in PC Magazine. Uh, why don't you walk uh, walk the audience through it? <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is this is a story where the, sometimes I usually start with thinking of a good lead. In this case, the headline came first. My homage to the New York Daily News classic, Elon Musk to headline writers drop dead, <laughs> where he decided somewhere in his own galaxy brain that we don't need to have headlines on the share cards that appear when, when you share a link in a tweet. I'm still going to call it a tweet. Another reason he could be angry at me. Uh, because God knows there's already, we don't have enough of a problem with context getting lost on Twitter. Let's rip away that. People immediately had fun with this. They would share a link to one story or another about this stupid decision by Elon Musk, illustrated, you, know, you still have the, the lead art from the pick from the story. So it's a, it's a link to Fortune or Time or Washington Post or whatever, a picture of Elon Musk. And the tweet would be breaking Elon Musk cancels Starship projects or all sorts of other mean, hostile things that anybody who had spent more than 10 minutes online on social media and was aware of the fact that like there's such a thing as griefers and trolls could have seen coming. And yet he hasn't walked it back. And so that really seemed to be another breaking point for a lot of people in the news to say, like, that's it. I'm out this the entire point of being on Twitter a lot, for a lot of journalists has been to share their work, hopefully get a little more circulation. But if you're now just getting kneecapped because Elon Musk had some random thought in the middle of the night and no one at the company can tell him no, not even the alleged CEO, Lindy Yaccarino. So another chapter in his grotesque dismal mismanagement of his $44 billion purchase. So, so John, you're you're a big fan of Elon Musk. You've been yeah. out with him for dinner many, many times. Um, but Rob, you know, the, what Rob did not mention is that of all of Elon Musk's accomplishments, he he's never been a reporter, as far as I know. So I'm not, I'm not sure he understands the news business. Not that that's no. a defense, but you know, he's looking at it from a business angle and not from a from a journalism angle. But um, John, what's your what's your colorful thoughts are? Uh, well, it's interesting, you know, NPR is still not uh, on Twitter anymore because he thinks it's like he doesn't free press journalists. Those are words that Elon Musk does not understand. Right. Clearly he's made that pretty demonstrably clear that he doesn't believe in a free press or understand what it is. So not surprising. But he also has a lot. There's tremendous amount of ignorance about cybersecurity and privacy, too, on Elon Musk's part witness his jet, which you can still follow on Facebook or anywhere you want to. Um, so if you want to know where Elon is, no problem. But he doesn't really understand some of those issues as well. Or also with this, by making this kind of change, you're just asking people to put malware and hacks in there. I mean, the more less information you put on that and the more easy you make those links to sites like that, which is what he's done, of course, right? You can now embed malware in that as well so it's just just a, making it a little easier for the hackers so maybe you know hackers rejoice elon has changed the rules again 
Okay, so one last invite to a Elon Musk dinner party. We'll put you down for that. <laughs> um, Stuart, when I saw Rob's headline, I immediately thought of that 1975 headline. Uh, I think it was, uh, wasn't it, Gerald Ford? To, Ford, um, Ford to City dropped dead. Yeah, dropped dead. Exactly. exactly. So, so Rob should be paying a royalty for that headline. But anyway. <laughs> it's an homage, which is covered by fair use. So, yes. Right. So what's your homage thoughts on this? Well, I think this is very much related to the first topic, which is the democratization of information and media. Um, and the fact that it, on the one hand, it's sort of an alkaline, acidic sort of view of this, where on the photo side, you have everybody able to do this. But on the on the Twitter side, on the on the um, on the social media side, you have individuals able to control this. I don't know if you guys have been watching the morning show on Apple TV Plus, but um, John Hamm plays an Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos character who's buying the fictional network that Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon work for. Oh, and spoiler. He, spoiler. <laughs> exactly. And so we are, we're at the point in the series where everybody is really concerned what, he, what this character is going to do with this legacy media operation and he talks a good game but who knows what's going to happen and so to a certain extent elon musk is simply a throwback to william randolph hearst and a lot of the newspaper magnates of the 19th century who control a huge swath of media but of course once they let that dog out of the doghouse you have no idea where it's going to run and i think that's a situation that that we're finding ourselves in with social media that you have People with good or bad intentions who simply don't understand the repercussions of what they're what they're doing. Yeah. Well, well, we have to get to the next topic, but I have a feeling that Elon Musk's name is going to come up again. We cannot avoid the man, and I really think that. Um, no, I'm not going to. I won't. I, I won't say it. I, I, won't, <laughs> I mean, you, you got to oh, accept it. Ahead. You're amongst friends. Nobody's listening. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 I just, you know, I think obviously, I think there's a lot of um, truth to what to what um, Rob wrote in his piece. I just think that he's such a target right now. I mean, you, you guys love to go after, not so much you, Stuart. You're, I think you're a bit more fair and balanced, but I, I, I rue the day when John and Rob are in a room alone with Elon Musk. <laughs> that, that would be a, that would be an article. I, I talk about space. I talk about yes, rockets. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure you would. I'm sure that's exactly what you guys would be talking about. So let's talk about this last topic, and that is uh, smart grids. Um, right. I, John, I believe that was your topic. Um, that is. And, yeah. uh, now, smart grids, obviously, are a very, very important topic, and, but you have some some real-life um, interest in this, so I'll let you uh, tee this off. Well, I, I, I absolutely, I'm, I'm uh, looking out at the leaves and what colors are left. It's been a weird uh, season because climate change is affecting things like that, too, but I'm actually in Vermont. And so, you know... Uh, here it's there are not a lot of power goes out fairly frequently there are a lot of weather issues environmental issues and stuff um and pretty severe weather that we're used to here so obviously power is a big issue and everybody's always told you can't fight city hall and you also can't fight the power company so if they want yeah, to come in and take your home so we've had some battles with the power company here you know uh full disclosure a few years ago which we actually won so you can take the power company on as some residents around Lake Champlain understand too, when the power company tried to take some homes and things there. So 
what's this all about? Well, the smart grid issue has always been, well, the power companies are going to be the last companies to actually upgrade. Healthcare, second to last. And then actual last will be the public utilities, right? They don't want to upgrade or spend any money anywhere. Um, lo and behold, in Green Mountain Power in Vermont has just proposed this week that they would do one thing, which they almost never do, which is bury the power lines. Duh, that would be a big help, right? Um, because that is responsible for all the outages that we have. And you cannot cut enough trees down here, which everybody knows fights them in Vermont, because how far back do you, you know, the trees keep growing and there's just, you're, it's endless. Um, it's also causes a lot of environmental damage, erosion, soil erosion, all sorts of other issues. So that was one suggestion. The other one that's also interesting to us is to give homeowners batteries, or I guess lease them batteries and allow them to start selling them and putting in homeowners places to alleviate those outages, right? So you would have a battery in your basement, trickle charged or charged overnight, you know, over many months. And then when the power was out interrupted, you'd still have power. They want to do that. And they're proposing that. Now there are only 270,000 customers or so in Vermont on Green Mountain Power, but still it's a pretty big change in attitude by a power company. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's also forward looking in the sense that we're already putting some wind here and some solar in Vermont. And the complaint about those is it's not consistent. Well, if every home or business had a battery like that, then you'd fill in the little gaps if there were any gaps with things like that. So very interesting proposal. We'll see where the regulators go by it, but it's certainly more consumer friendly and it's more forward looking than any power company I've seen in a long time. Right. Uh, Stuart, your reaction? Well, it's funny. We had, uh, I live in a co-op and uh, we had a co-op meeting last night. And one of the topics of conversation was what they have in New York called Local Law 97 which mm -hmm. was passed in 2019, which requires buildings of a certain size to cut down their carbon emissions. And so what our building was talking about, and apparently a lot of buildings like ours, it's a six-story pre-war century-old building, is putting up solar panels on the roof and putting batteries in the basement. It would be a very high initial investment, but over time it would pay for itself because obviously you're feeding power into the grid. So it's not only happening in Vermont, New York City, under its green plan, is trying to push these same sorts of technology, solar bat and solar cells and batteries to make um, not primarily to cut down on carbon emissions. Apparently, what I read was that that 70 percent of carbon emissions are caused by buildings in New York. And so I have a feeling that this is simply going to be a train that everybody is going to be getting on eventually because it just makes too much sense um one of the things that new york did a long time ago which we've discussed here before is at the turn of the 20th century new york city buried its cables because at the time blizzards kept knocking down all the telegraph and new electrical cables out so that's why you very rarely hear about power outages in manhattan the cables are underground. You, nothing can happen to them in extreme weather. So I think all of these trends are going to start building up over time throughout the country because it almost has to happen, especially with more fiercer storms caused by climate change. I think a lot of municipalities are going to start doing this big and small just because it makes total sense. 
but so just a quick follow-up question, then we'll get Rob to close out on this topic. Is that since you live in a pre-war building, mm-hmm. the the expense must be enormous. What's the, the what, what's the payback? Well, I mean, they're, they're I still mean, they're still exploring that. Apparently, one of the people at the meeting last night said that she knows somebody who lives in a building around the block from here who has done it for a, a lot lower price. Now, for buildings like ours. The question is not whether or not the technology is expensive, but whether or not the roof will support the panels. Right. right, um, right. So there is a great expense. But what ends up happening is that once you do it, and we're, we were talking about the democratization of media, this is the democratization of energy by getting people batteries in their own home that feed into the smart grid that can be um, not controlled necessarily, but monitored by the utility at large. It enables a lot of individuals to take more control over their power concerns. Yes, there is a very high initial expense, and I have the feeling that at some point there will probably be some government aid, tax abatements, that sort of thing, for hurrying this process along, only because they're getting a lot of pushback, obviously, because it is expensive. But once you install these things, the fact that you will be able to sell power back into the system will eventually more than pay for the initial outlay. And so because it is a New York City law, you're seeing a lot more co-ops like ours really looking at this seriously, taking the hit now and and and, and setting up for the future because to not do it now completely kills you going forward. Well, and and, and Rob, I want to get your pull you into this to uh, kind of uh, tr- uh, end our podcast is that I live in a building in Silicon Valley at Centennial Row, which is a fairly upscale place been here for 17 18 years the building has been here for about 20 years the homeowner the hoa did investigate putting panels on this on the roof and uh batteries of course in the common garage that we have and they came back with an assessment that would cost every the building is like well it's relatively large i think there's 120 units in the building which is not small it came back that uh, each hoa or homeowner would be on the hook for about $54,000. <laughs> so it was, again, that was without any type of, um, you know, tax abatement relief. You know, they're in California, of course, they do all kinds of creative things to try to get that cost down. But I mean, that's one of the challenges, right? That, that you know, especially if you own a condo or a co-op and you may not be there the rest of your life, you know, your argument is, why am I going to spend all this money if I may not be here five years from now? You know, that kind of logic. Rob, take us home on this. Two different things we're talking about here that I can understand. One is um, transitioning to renewable energy. It's a good idea. What's the most efficient way to do it? I'm not so sure that putting solar panels in individual buildings in Manhattan is going to be more cost effective than spending that money on retiring every last coal, certainly in gas power plant in the state of New York, because that's a giant point source of carbon pollution and other pollution, which is really bad for people who live next to it. You know, ask anyone who lived in Astoria next to those power plants, not a great place to be. But the other half of it is grid resiliency. And so in a place like Vermont, I totally get the logic. You could spend so much money burying power lines, which is really expensive and prolonged and difficult. There's a reason why usually these things are on poles or give people batteries, put solar cells on roofs. Puerto Rico, another case, I hope they're doing it that way. Because, yeah, you want to have a resilient array of microgrids, my understanding. I don't have an electrical engineering degree. My wife does, though. And that seems like a better way to go to get around the fact that, yeah, power lines fall down in storms. Trees fall on them. They get knocked over. 
if you can make your power grid greener and also more able to function even when disconnected, that seems like a great use of someone's money, the utilities money, the taxpayers money, whoever it may be. Well, Rob, let's, uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, end it there. But listen, thanks, guys, for calling into the uh, podcast. Uh, thank to the viewing and listening audience. Thanks for making the Smart Tech Check podcast part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast or use these convenient on-screen QR codes to connect with me. You can also follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, for those people who know that it's... It's still Twitter. Yeah. It's still it's Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, let's have, a, let's have a fight. We'll call it Twitter from now on. Who cares what Elon Musk thinks? But guys, thanks for your help. And until next time, have a great weekend. Thank you.